any of you fans of the show The Office? Okay, so The Office is a show about a pretty much a dysfunctional workplace with a really terrible boss. Um, and in the show, The Office, the boss's name is Michael, and he constantly centers himself and his experiences and is all around a terrible caricature of an ignorant, self-centered, albeit well-intentioned by his own estimation boss. In one episode titled Grief Counseling, his old boss, the one who had previously held his job as manager, dies unexpectedly, and in his own process of mourning, he wants the office to feel what he feels. He wants to know that they care about him as he's mourning the loss of someone that he cared about who held his position. Well, it turns out, because they didn't know him at all, and he's an ignorant, aloof person, they don't really care that much. And so after a million strategies that he tries to pull off to make them feel something, he says this. There are five stages of grief, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And right now, they are all out there denying the fact that they are sad, and that's hard, and it's making them all angry. And it is my job to get them all the way through to acceptance. And if not to acceptance, then just depression. If I can get them depressed, then I'll have done my job. <laughs> and this is a little, bit about, a little bit of how I felt like I was being set up when Tim said, quote, Hey, Brandy, how would you feel about preaching about death? And now that I think about this invitation, it does feel a little bit like a setup. Because while most of us know people that have died, by nature of being in the room, none of us have experienced it. And the reality is that as we talk about death and approach Easter and the resurrection next Sunday, we tend to skim over death as the necessary evil that Jesus had to go through for our sin, rather than to sit in the tension of death, face it, and even feel it a little bit. Now, I say this carefully because I realize that we have really different experiences of death in the room. Some of us have had near-death experiences. Some of us have lost children, spouses, parents, and friends. And some of us live with illnesses or disease that make us feel like death is metaphorically knocking at our door every day. Some of us, when we think about death like I was taught to, think about the good old spiritual death to self um, or things that need to die in our culture. And all of those things matter and are valid. And my hope is that we, as we briefly look at Jesus today and some well-known stories or moments in his life, that we would see how he approaches death and catch a glimpse of how to not do what many of us do, which is avoid death, negativity, and brokenness at all costs, but rather to face death. And as we do, to choose life for ourselves, for our neighbors, and for the world. Because some of us act like death um, is a, like the grim reaper who's chasing us down, and we are just trying to run away as fast as we can, hoping that we make it just a little longer. And that's not how Jesus approaches death. And I'll be very, very honest. Preparing a sermon about death is a real bummer. I, like many of us, avoid talking about death or thinking about the notion of my existence ending. So this week I felt like I had um, a million existential or near existential crises, wondering what it means to live fully, to live at all, and what this whole Jesus thing actually means. Because while Jesus talks about his own death a fair amount, if you really dig into the words that he says about our death, there isn't actually a lot there. And I don't know if you all caught the photos. Um, did any of you catch the photos of the first image of a black hole this week? Pretty amazing stuff, right? Um, and at the surface level, I can nod along and be like, wow, that is fascinating and amazing. But if I sit too long and I think about the infinitely expanding universe or the finiteness of my own life, I start to capsize it on myself like a dying star myself. <laughs> but I don't think it has to be this way. This morning, my only hope is to help us to take a look at Jesus 
as he walked toward his own death and to glean an approach to death that helps us to live more fully. And at the end of the day, Jesus' life was about that. It was about living fully. And so uh, I, won't, I don't expect that we will find any kind of resolution today. Um, I think the point of Holy Week as we enter it, and especially Good Friday, is that we sit in the tension of death for a moment. So we're going to do that. So maybe don't expect like rah, rah Jesus um, at the end of this time. <laughs> so before the point that we will enter the text, Jesus has been gathering a group of disciples and friends and has been drawing crowds to teach them the way of the kingdom of God, what it is like when God is king. And he gives them a bunch of opportunities to practice it. And as we've talked about many times before, the disciples are a mixed bag of success and failure. And as they move toward their failure, what I call their phase of failure in Luke 8, 9, and 10, um, there's a turning point in the story. The disciples are starting to get a little cocky. They're excluding people, they're turning away kids, they're shutting down the work of Jesus if they're not the center of it. And at this moment where all these like, ridiculous stories are happening, the narrative slows down and we see this interaction in Luke 9. Once, while Jesus was praying alone, with only the disciples near him, which doesn't sound like alone to me, but he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? The disciples answered, John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Jesus affirms his answer, and I bet at this point Peter is like, nailed it. Not only has he gotten the answer right, he's unlocked the secret mystery identity of Jesus, but he also knows that he is following the Messiah of God, the one who will not only save them from their sin and brokenness, but from systems of evil and violence that oppress them and the world. And I assume that Peter and the other disciples, by extension, are flying high for the two seconds before Jesus starts talking again. The text says this. He sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. If this were a movie, at this point you would hear the needle scratch on the record. What? Jesus is somehow both the Messiah and going to die? This is not what they expected, nor what they wanted, or what they signed up for. And Jesus does what he always does when the disciples would rather he not. He continues expanding his talking to be about them too. Then he said to them all, If any of you wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Not only is Jesus himself going to die what seems like an actual, non-spiritual, non-metaphorical death, he tells his followers that they are to follow him along, to lose their lives on a daily basis as they follow him in order that they might live fully. If I were a disciple at this point, I would be looking for exit routes or opting out. I would not be pleased. And I would especially be displeased because 20 verses before this, he had just sent them out on their first mission. So this is a pretty short-lived glory that they've had. And what is more weird to me than the fact that the disciples in this narrative don't respond to the thing that Jesus says that's kind of bonkers, is that the narrative itself moves on. And while there are a few stories of miraculous events and healing, a few stories later, Jesus reiterates the same story again, but with more detail. Not only is Jesus going to die, 
It is the corrupt, ethnocentric, and power-hungry political and religious leaders that are going to do the job. In other words, Jesus won't let this whole death thing go. He won't let it go. And in Luke 9.51, we get one of the strangest uh, sentences in the scriptures to me. It says, And when the days came near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This marks a major turning point in the narrative as Jesus begins the journey toward the cross that we observe and grieve before celebrating the resurrection on Easter Sunday next week. He sets his face to Jerusalem. Jesus knows that he's going to die and starts walking, literally walking, in that direction. Now, some of you might be like, okay, well, that's Jesus. Of course he had to die. He had to do that for our sin so he could die for you and me. Sure. But the reality is that Jesus makes a conscious choice not to avoid his own death, but to face it, to turn his face toward the place where he will be crucified. Now, if I were to guess the narrative at this point, I'm a writer, so I I like to write the end of stories, I would assume that this is a linear and depressing journey, like the textual embodiment of the Charlie Brown do-do-do-do-do, like you'd expect that it would just go to his betrayal and to his death. But it doesn't. Jesus turns his face toward his death, toward his mortality, toward his humanity, and he walks toward its inevitability, And the story starts to tell you the geography of what is going on here, and it gets really confusing. Because I would think that from wherever Jesus is, he's focused. He's trying to get to that point. But what you see is that at one moment, Jesus is in Samaria, and then he's like miles and miles and miles away in Galilee, and then he's on the edge of Jerusalem, and then he's really far away again. In other words, the text doesn't give us a clear path to Jesus' death, but rather actually leaves us asking, Does the author even know the geography of the place that they're telling us about? And on this journey to his death, when he sets his face toward his death, these are the things that we see happen. He casts out demons, as he does. He sends out 72 more people to do the mission and celebrates with joy as they return. In your Bible, the little subheading most likely says something like, Jesus rejoices. This is like two stories later. He calls out the unjust practices of the cities around him. He tells parables over and over again about how to love and to include people. He teaches people how to pray. He blesses people. He casts out more demons. He calls out the religious powerhouses of the day for the ways that they are in bed with political structures that exclude, disempower, and and oppress. He tells people not to be hypocrites, which I always love until I realize that I'm the hypocrite he's talking to. He teaches about money and then why we shouldn't worry. That's a good one. He teaches enemy love over and over and over again. And only after he does all of this does he get to the city where he will eventually die a week later. It seems that the path that Jesus follows to his own death isn't a straight one where he's leaving a funeral dirge of depression behind him. Instead, it's messy and obscure and kind of confusing. It's a journey of joy and sorrow, of friendship and loss, and preparation for pain and death. It has high points and low points. And all along the way, Jesus is found at tons of feasts and banquets with his friends and followers. He and and his disciples have a ton of wins and losses in this. And I imagine that it's just a lot of moments of not dwelling on what is going to happen. Jesus knows that his own death is coming, but he doesn't spend every moment fixated on it, even when he is turned toward the reality of it. And I think our lives are much more like this than we might imagine Jesus' journey toward his death is like. We live with the inevitability of death, loss, and suffering in our lives. 
and we live lives that exemplify the vast array of human experiences of joy and pain, of loss and gain, of hope and suffering, fun and joy and sorrow and sadness and victory and defeat and success and failure. It's a mixed bag. And what this tells me is that when Jesus sees his death and doesn't shy away from it, is that Jesus is seeing his death as an opportunity to choose to live fully and presently with his people and for the good of the culture and the people in it. Not to live just fixated on fear and fixated on his fear and on his death, even if he is facing it. Death will come. It is inevitable. So we turn our face toward it, knowing that it will come and choose to move toward it and choosing life along the way. We, like Jesus, face death, but we choose life. And often when we think about facing death, we are told uh, this phrase that I really hate, actually, which is, um, live each day like it's your last, or live like you're dying, which there literally is no other way to live. (laughs) We are. Um, But that sounds awful to me. I know it's a way of saying not to waste any of your days, but it also glorifies death as the winner of our existence. Like that death is just going to catch up, like I said before, and we have to run away as fast as we can. But it also teaches us to live really selfishly. It teaches us to live every day in a way that centers ourselves and what we want and what we feel like we need, instead of recognizing that the journey toward death should motivate us toward seeing our own lives be more like Jesus and to see the kingdom of heaven come to people around us. So we turn toward death, and we choose life. And we do that by embracing the fullness of the human experience, which, like Jesus' journey to the cross, was nonlinear, but it was inherently about other people. For me, in the practical day-to-day, this looks like uh, choosing things that bring me joy, having fun. I've got a lot of weird hobbies. I like kiteboarding, and I play the drums, and I like really bad movies like Mean Girls. And it means like watching those kinds of things because it brings me joy in life. It means choosing to go to therapy because I need to work out some stuff in my life. It means choosing slower routes to success. It looks like pursuing relationships and intimacy because I'm human and I'm made for that. That as I pursue those things, it actually makes me better for the people around me. And it allows me to see the places where others in my life have needs that I can meet because Jesus has invited me to do so. Facing death to choose life has looked like asking the question, what can I contribute to the small places that I occupy, and how can I make heaven an available reality to people around me right now? It's not how do I change the world completely, it's how do I start where I am? For me, and this is more intense because I'm an intense person, um, it looks like dismantling systemic oppression in organizations that I'm a part of. It looks like making space for my own communities, uh, in my own communities, for people to be included radically. It's not grand or sexy work, at all. That'd be weird if it was sexy work, I guess. Um, But it gives me a bigger picture for my life than the live each day like I'm dying narrative. It makes me less selfish. As I choose to live for others, I've found myself more deeply and I've seen Jesus more deeply. That's the point. Looking at death and the finiteness of my life helps me to actually choose to live fully. So we're going to make a little shift in the text here because there is that piece just about choosing to live in a way that pursues joy in the midst of death But it's also critical that when we see Jesus' choice to live fully, that we see his choice to take the risk to die as he confronts oppression that has disguised itself in religious robes. As Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he will be confronted, tortured, and killed by people who are basically good religious people. They are the Bible scholars and pastoral figures of the day, and even they were not above choosing the route of death-bringing or expediting the process of death-bringing in people's lives. 
Jesus had questioned their authority over and over again. And as they were generally supported by and empowered by the oppressive, colonizing, and cruel Roman government, he put into question not only the validity of their religious authority, but endangered their place in political life. And in reality, they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. On the contrary, the religious leaders of the day were devout and saw themselves as working in the political system to ensure that Israel would be great again. They, in turn, compromised the peace-loving, inclusive, and radical enemy-loving way of Jesus and opted to live into the cruelty and violence of the empire. And I think this is really easy to do. And so this should all give us pause. As we are people who see death and violence all around us, specifically in and perpetuated by our country, we must ask how religious leaders and Christians, everyday Christians like you and I ourselves, can be so easily co-opted by political power, create exclusion and death, instead of seeing our own deaths as opportunities to confront the systems that don't look like the inclusive, peace-centering way of Jesus. And that is hard work, y'all. Jesus models that it is imperative that Christians see and take action against oppression. It is not optional. Jesus literally models it as he moves toward his death and is killed by those systems. This for us looks like tearing down structures that uh, rob people of the image of God in them, uh, structures and systems like white supremacy, classism, ableism, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, and that we do that in our communities, in our schools, our jobs, and our churches, not just online like a lot of us would like to think justice starts from. I don't know that anyone's ever been won to an argument over Facebook. We need to do the real work. We need to interrupt spaces where oppression is happening. We need to disrupt language that dehumanizes over and over again. And we can do that in our everyday lives. This is costly stuff. Working against oppression literally costs Jesus his life. So when we see the death around us, instead of turning our back to it, we do what Jesus did and we face it. Because in facing it, we are able to see the ways that we need to bring life and healing in the kingdom of heaven to places where death is existent. If we turn our back and walk away from those experiences, we step outside of the way of Jesus. We just do. So now, Jesus has been walking for a while, and when he finally arrives in Jerusalem chapters later, he does so, and he does something that immediately makes me uncomfortable. He starts grieving. He starts grieving of what was known as God's city, Jerusalem. It has been taken over by religious and political power and has so corrupted the way of God that the very city of God will, still, will soon kill God. That's concerning. Jesus, in facing his own death and working for good, sees how his own people, the people that he created, have turned away from their own humanity and the humanity of their neighbor. And he has seen the ways that they've tried to preserve it as though they were God. And as a, as a result, have chosen death for others and for themselves as they walk further away from the God who is literally walking among them. It's intense stuff. Some people say uh, that Jesus died to defeat death, to in effect make death die. Um, But often God's people, in an attempt to avoid death, suffering and violence, or even just a loss of power, bring death to others through our greed, practices, policies, and politics. This isn't the way of Jesus, which I know we know. He did not set his people to a life of self-preservation, but of self-giving, and as a result, fighting oppression even to the point of his literal death. So as Christian communities, we must ask, if we not only see injustice in our midst, because seeing is good, but it is only a first step, 
but we have to ask if we are doing something about it. We must ask which systems or practices or values privilege and empower us because of race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, or for many of us, just religion. And we must lay down our power as Jesus did in order to pursue life on behalf of others. I think earlier when Jesus said that you have to lose your life to gain it, he was revealing that when we pursue this way of the kingdom, when we do what Jesus did, we experience the fullness of what it means to be human. Highs and lows, ups and downs, And we do so with the joy that facing our death actually allows us to choose life. If we only fixate on the good, we ignore the places where life needs to come. If we fixate on death and let it sink us, we'll live lives of despair. We sit in the tension of the two, and we do what Jesus did. We face death, and we choose life. So this is all interesting in hypothetical terms, but uh, I felt like it's important that I just share a couple of my own experiences with death, to help us to know, to maybe just to find ourselves in the story, because I think death is so abstract for a lot of us. Um, It's either very close or it's very abstract, and there isn't a lot in the middle. So hopefully some of my stories will help to locate us um, a little bit. Because I've actually grown up with uh, a disproportionate amount of death in my life. Uh, I lived in a house growing up where my great aunt, my my grandma, and my grandpa all died in a span of a few years in the house I was living in. And if I'm honest, I don't think I knew how to respond very well, and that makes sense. Um, I was an early teenager uh, and a young adult through that time and in really formative years of my life. But when I look back, the trauma of those experiences make it so that I actually have almost no memory of that window of my life. Like when you ask me about high school, I don't remember anything that happened in my home, like almost at all. Occasionally I'll have small memories come back, but I don't really remember. There was a lot of trauma that caused me to forget There's not a lot I can do about that um, from what happened. But that kind of thing might be true for some of us. We may have deep trauma and not know how how to begin to process. We may not know what to do. And that's okay. And I think a lot of us, when we look at those things in our life, those traumas, um, we fear what will happen if we sit in them for too long, like when I sat and looked um, at that black hole or at death this week. But it's important that we know uh, that trauma lives in our bodies and impacts our health and our lives. Uh, And that there are ways that we can step forward into looking at death but not letting it sink us. Uh, For me, that just meant that I needed to, right, like a decade later, choose to give myself space to spend a few minutes thinking about it. It didn't mean like sitting for like 10 hours and like whatever. It looked like saying like for 10 minutes I'm gonna think about this and see if I can remember anything. It was giving myself space to cry. It was giving myself time and the permission to start therapy even though uh, the culture around us stigmatizes mental health. So if you are like me, I encourage you to pursue help. Grief and trauma don't just go away, but again, they live in our bodies and impact our lives and health. And sometimes we just need to take one step forward in healing um, in order to choose life. So we face the death in our lives so that we can choose life on the other side of it. Uh, Secondarily, when uh, I was 14, I had one of my first experiences with death. Uh, One of my best friends from my youth group, Paul, uh, was killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. Uh, And I remember being in disbelief and not knowing how to respond at all. I had never considered death in a significant way. Um, It was like something I saw in video games or on TV, but that had never been really close to me. And I really didn't know how to respond to it when it was someone my age. I had no concept that that kind of thing could happen, and I didn't know what to do. 
Again, I think when we think about death, oftentimes we just don't know what to do, and that is okay. It is the unknown. Uh, this was one of the first times in my life where Christian community became significant for me. My friends and I, after he died, just got together to cry. We sat and shared stories and did the kind of laughing and celebrating of a person that can almost only happen in deep sorrow or loss. Uh, In hindsight, I'm surprised that that experience didn't make me more fearful of my own death. But instead, in in, in turning and facing his death and looking at it even for brief moments with friends, um, it wasn't wasn't great when I was doing it alone, and looking at the possibility that that it could happen to me, it caused me to celebrate his life and want to use whatever time that I had to make an impact that he had. And his impact was friendship. He was 13. He hadn't done anything yet. But him living fully was enough to help me learn how to live fully. So for some of us who are in the midst of tragedy or on the brink of it, we see despair as inevitable. And as I look at Jesus, he doesn't ignore the pain, but chooses life in the mixed bag. It is a mixed bag that comes with death. So for me, that looked like laughing at home videos of my friend doing what I know now is was like terrible comedy and doing so with my friends until we, had, we cried a mixture of raucous laughter and coping sadness. And it was good. We faced death to find life. And I understand that many of us are afraid of death and avoid it. And a talk like this can sound trivial um, or act like the process of facing death is easy, and it is not. It is not at all. Um, I tell my stories a decade in hindsight or more um, because it's taken me that long to process and, and respond to a lot of those things. This is a journey, and we all have a long way to go in it, and I know that I do. And we don't do this to rush toward death. We don't face death to rush toward it. But we face it to let it change how we live our lives and how we pursue life for others. So as we finish up, uh, there's a few ways that I think that we can choose to face death and to choose life as we acknowledge the reality and inevitability of death and sit in the tension as we turn toward Easter next week. Number one, I think we can choose to live vulnerably and intimately. Uh, I was telling some people this earlier, but uh, one of the stranger things about me is that uh, every two to three years, I read Dante's 14th century poem, The Inferno, uh, which is an old antiquated work that characterizes hell or the second death. And when I'm reading this, uh, this poem, the thing that sticks out to me, right, it's like 150 pages of just characterizing hell. The way that Dante describes hell is proximity without intimacy. Being near to people, but being very far apart. Being in the same room, dying, but never being fully known. So we choose to live vulnerably and intimately because humans are built for vulnerability and intimacy and wholeness. And those things bring us wholeness but it's really hard to let ourselves be seen. We would rather self-protect and wall off, but we can choose life. We can choose life outside of isolation and fear. And I think about this often, um, because living living fully means that we need to be seen fully. Um, Some of us feel like we're living halfway because we're only seen halfway by the people around us, because we would rather hide or avoid the things that are causing pain in our lives, even the things that we have done. We see all of who we are, and we allow others to do the same. And in being seen and in seeing deeply, we get to experience what it means to face death in, our, in ourselves and choose life. And I guarantee that vulnerability, when we first practice it, feels a lot like facing death in every moment. Number two, we act when we see suffering. 
I know that some of us can't handle the news because it's so depressing. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that we overexpose ourselves to the brokenness of the world or watch and engage so much that we become des desensitized um, or kind of mean. But rather, we need to be people who see the brokenness in the world and let it motivate us to change things. We need to be people uh, who, who let suffering move us with our money, with our relationships. For some of us, it might just mean giving. It might mean voting. It might mean building a cross-cultural friendship or saying hi to a person who no one else speaks to on the streets. Right? It means that we interrupt, interrupt, like I said, oppressive comments that are made in our workplaces. It means that we create space for people who have had none. We must develop as the church an impulse that turns toward death and suffering, that sees it clearly so that we can pursue life as we see it. Number three, and I think this is one of the more challenging ones for some of us, is that we need to take grief seriously. Some of us have unprocessed grief and trauma, maybe things that we have never talked about with another human. When we work out our trauma in relationships, support groups, and therapy and more, we allow ourselves space to heal. Ignoring a physical injury doesn't help it to heal, neither does avoiding the places where we've experienced literal death and trauma which takes place in our lives. So in that, number four is to know our limits and to go at it with Jesus. Don't try to face death all at once. I think there's some ways that like, a, a person like me would be like, all right, I'm going to go home now and I'm going to write down all of my worst traumas and then I'm going to face them all to choose life. That would not be wise. I would not recommend that strategy. But we do need to practice unnumbing ourselves and letting the dark, and to practice unnumbing ourselves without letting the darkness of the world overtake us. And I think this requires a deeper spirituality than many of us have been taught to have. It requires rooting ourselves in prayer and in worship and in community so that when we are facing the darkness, we know that Jesus is close to and near us. Right? There's a reason that uh, scripture uses the metaphor of light and darkness often. A lot of us fixate on the darkness, which is what it can sound like when I'm talking about facing death, but we miss all of the light. I think we have to do the mixed bag and have them together. And finally, I would say, don't live every day like it's your last. Live every day as though your awareness of both your own death and the death of others gives an opportunity to model the selfless and self-giving way of Jesus that took the unconventional route and lived fully, even with his face toward death, letting the things that would happen enrich the depth of his life, not rob him of it. Because in this way, Jesus doesn't only go to the cross to die for us, but on the journey shows us how to choose life on our own journeys, even as we face death. So as we move toward Easter, I invite you to face death, to turn toward the things that you might be avoiding that are robbing you of your life in your day-to-day, -day, and to let even for this one week, holy week, for God to bring healing to places where there is death, and this will feel pretty awful, I'm sure. Um, but when I think about like, how you reset a bone when it is broken, it is pain before healing. And I don't think that is always true, but I think for a lot of us it will be. So I'm going to pray for us as we close today, asking that God would give us a place to face death in our own lives, that we would have more healing and be able to choose life.